This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. Each year, the California LGBT Caucus honors individuals who have made significant contributions to the LGBT community. Sarah McBride is the National Press Secretary for the Human Rights Campaign and an author. Sarah made national headlines when she came out as transgender while serving as student body president at American University. Sarah also became the first openly transgender person to address a major political party convention when she spoke at the 2016 Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. Welcome, Ms. Sarah McBride. The feeling of having a gender identity that differs from your sex assigned at birth felt like a constant feeling of homesickness. California has always been at the forefront of the movement for LGBTQ equality. And the rest of the country is looking west. They're looking at California for that model. And I think you have been providing that and you will continue to provide that. And in doing so, you're going to save lives and you're going to demonstrate what this country will hopefully look like in 10 or 15 years. Hi, I'm Assemblymember Todd Gloria, and I'd like to welcome you to Look West. On this episode, we're celebrating the annual LGBT awards that happen every year at the California State Capitol. And I'm here today with one of our recipients of this prestigious award, Sarah McBride. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. How about we start by just sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, So my name's Sarah McBride. I'm a transgender woman uh, born and raised in the great state of Delaware. Uh, I'm currently working, as you mentioned, at the Human Rights Campaign, uh, traveling around the country and, and increasingly actually getting to travel around the world, talking about the importance of LGBTQ equality and particularly uh, sharing my own journey as a transgender woman. Uh, I came out as transgender about six years ago when I was serving as student body president in college. Uh, that was a, a process, a journey 21 years in the making. And I was very fortunate when I came out. I received nothing but love and support from my family and my friends, from my campus community. But as difficult as it was for me to come out, it was still relatively easy compared to the experiences of most. And so I wanted to make sure that I took the privileges that I had and tried to make sure that they're no longer a privilege, but rather a right guaranteed to every single person, no matter their sexual orientation or gender identity. So I've been working for equality first in my home state of Delaware and now nationally and and to some degree internationally with the Human Rights Campaign. And I recently just... um, published a book, as, as you mentioned, uh, that details my own journey as a transgender advocate, my relationship with my late husband, Andy, who was a transgender man, uh, and, talk, and it talks a bit about the unfinished work of the transgender and LGBTQ community. And I've, I've had the privilege of, of traveling around the country, and it's just an honor to be here today. Now, you're under 30, correct? I'm 27, yes. So just for our listeners, just taking all that you've already done in your life, when I was uh, um, researching, that's like the proper term, right? Uh, they're, they're more Googling. Def- or stalking, as yeah. the case may be. But uh, as we were uh, uh, preparing for this, I was really impressed by your resume. And I think one of the things that struck me that's maybe similar between you and I um, was this sort of early call to activism. And I was curious for you, um, there's, there's the desire to be active uh, and there's our LGBTQ identities. Do you think one led to the other or were you just always active um, or was it the civil rights movement that caused you to become politically active? I think that's a, that's a great question. I'm actually really curious also to, to hear sort of your origin story. But I think for me, my LGBTQ identity was a central part of my journey to activism, my journey to, to getting involved in politics. And I was very involved in politics in middle school and high school in my home state. Delaware's very tiny, so it's very easy for a young person to to get involved and have an outsized influence. But I think 
for me, that that interest, that passion came from uh, being a voracious reader of history. And as I read the history books, I marveled at the scope of social change that filled their pages. But I also became very aware as I grew up that there was no one quite like me in those history books, at least no one who was out. And like so many LGBTQ young people, I wondered whether the heart of this country was big enough to love someone like me. And so I I kept my identity inside and, and I got involved in politics, I think, at the start because I thought if I could make a little bit more space for other people to live their life more fully and freely, that those things would somehow bring me the wholeness and completeness that I lacked. Um, and so it was really through my own struggle with my identity, my own search for a place in this country that could welcome and affirm and love me and others like me, that I got involved in politics. And frankly, I've been hooked since because I've seen that politics is a place where every avenue of society converges and where we can make the most change to make that space for other people to to live their life more fully. I love that. That's um that's a way more eloquent version uh, of what I would say, um, which, yeah, well, I was just, I was the nerdy kid who would, like, watch C-SPAN and, like, political conventions. I'm glad I'm not. We were the only two viewers of C-SPAN. <laughs> to this day still. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so I, I was just always drawn to politics. And what I always tell young people, you know, you don't have to be uh, old enough to vote in order to register someone to vote. And so I just got involved at an early age, but it was my queer identity that really allowed me to find my voice. I was a undergraduate student at a Catholic university, and this is in the mid-90s. Uh, you learn to become an activist pretty quickly. Um, and you know, I think a lot of us suffer from, and I think when I was reading um, your biography, I have to assume it was similar, um, the best little boy in the world syndrome, yes. right? where we want to be the most perfect version of a human being ever to make up for this perceived deficiency that is our identity or orientation. And so I was that guy. And it was uncomfortable to have to step out of those boundaries, right, to, to try and push, in this case, an administration to include a non-discrimination policy that was LGBT inclusive, uh, that I found my voice. And it was from there to housing advocacy, to serving on the city council, to being in the state legislature. But um, it was always sort of a chicken egg thing for me. You know, would, would I have been so active um, without my LGBT identity? Probably, um, but would it have been as quickly? I don't think so. I think I think it was that ability to become a student activist. Exactly what you're saying. So yeah. we're seeing the deficiencies and wanting to do something about it. I love that, and I very much relate to that that desire to be the best to to prove to yourself or other people, particularly if eventually I came out that. I could do everything everyone else could do, um, and I and I you know we see it in in so many for for me so many trans people and Caitlyn Jenner right winning the gold medal and putting using those goals to almost distract yourself too from from the struggle with with accepting who you are. Um, I, 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 I you mentioned something about sort of the the power of young voices and and that's something that I have come to really appreciate in getting involved as a young person early, which was. I also realized as a young person that we, and I'm 27, so I still consider myself young, but we have a unique gravity to our voice when we participate in politics, even if we can't vote, even if we're too young to vote, because young people speak from a place of history every time they talk about politics, particularly about civil and human rights. And it's not the history of the past, but the history that remains to be written. And young people will be the ones that get to decide who was right and who was wrong in this moment. And elected officials, policymakers, the public understand that. And so for me, it, it was such an incredible and empowering experience to get involved young and to witness firsthand that unique gravity to our voices. 
well, there's an authenticity with young yeah. people. And I would just say my experiences in public office is, is uh, sit up a little straighter and listen a little closer um, when a young person comes to testify because you recognize that more often than not, they're there out of pure belief as opposed to any uh, hidden agendas or um, other motivations. And um, that's why I always encourage young people who you know, often feel like they don't have a role because maybe they aren't old enough to vote. But they have power. Um, they have some juice, particularly here in the legislature. I, I think we all, a lot of my colleagues pay close attention to young people, which is uh, another kind of common denominator between us both is we were both student body presidents. Again, trying to be the best versions of right. ourselves, right? Um, talk about that experience. What was that like, particularly because you transitioned in that role? Yeah. So I, uh, during my sophomore year at American University, I decided to run for, for student body president. It was uh, an incredible experience. AU, American University, where I went to college, is an incredibly politically active campus, which means we all take student government way too seriously. Um, and, <laughs> Don't all of them? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. And, and you know, when I, when I started at campus, I was so focused on college Democrats and sort of the, po the traditional politics that I had been involved with in high school that I ignored the fact that there was change, opportunities for change right in front of me. And when I got initially involved in student government, I recognized that if we can't change our college campuses, then how are we going to change the country? And that those campuses should look like the country we want to build in 10 or 15 years. And that this was an opportunity to make change for people who needed it right in front of me. And so I decided to run for student body president. I ran very hard. I knocked on every single door on campus. They actually made a rule the next year that you could no longer knock on doors because I annoyed far too many people. <laughs> you made people. them change the rules. Wow. I Yes. I, I ran so hard that they had to change the rules so no one would, would do it again. And I ended up getting elected, and it was the first experience in sort of a, a an opportunity to affect change in such a tangible way. And that experience, actually, for me, was the experience I need to recognize needed to recognize that the things I told myself would bring me the wholeness and completeness that I sought wouldn't actually. That it was incredibly professionally fulfilling and 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 engaging and empowering to work on all of the issues I got to work on, LGBTQ equality issues, uh, campus safety, sexual assault prevention, uh, equity for students of color, but that that those things wouldn't actually bring me that wholeness. Mm. And so it was with that experience that I gained the, the, the insights and the courage and the confidence to actually come out to my parents in the middle of my term on Christmas Day. I have great timing. <laughs> I think mine was Thanksgiving Day. It's this always is, a holiday. Yeah. It's Everyone's always, together. What, that's you know, right. Everyone's there. And then on Christmas, there's nothing to do after you open the presents. <laughs> right. So I just decided that it was, it was the right time. Um, and, you know, my parents, they... They really, they struggled with the news. It was 2011, December of 2011, before this sort of transgender tipping point. But they made clear from the start that they loved me and that they supported me, as difficult as it was. Did they understand what transgender is? No, and, and I think it was actually through working through my coming out with my parents those first few weeks that I actually sort of first began to understand how to advocate mm -hmm. and talk about trans issues to people who have an open heart and who want to learn and who want to grow, but who don't understand, who aren't really able to wrap their minds around what it means to be transgender. And I think that's actually one of the challenges we have in this fight is that when it comes to gay, lesbian, and bisexual people, most people who are straight understand what it feels like to love and to lust. So they have an analogous experience to sort of enter into the conversation around sexual orientation in a way that allows them to empathize and, and find compassion. Whereas most people who aren't transgender, the, the term cisgender, 
don't have an analogous experience to the sensation of having a gender identity that differs from your sex assigned at birth. And so for me, it was through those first couple of weeks of trying to explain who I am and, and what it feels like to be me to my parents that I sort of figured out how to talk about it. And for me, what I told them was that the feeling of having a gender identity that differs from your sex assigned at birth felt like a constant feeling of homesickness, mm. an unwavering ache in the pit of my stomach that would only go away when I could be home, when I could be seen and affirmed as myself. Mm. You know, when I came out, people, people would always ask me, are you happy now? And it always came from from a good place, but I think it 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 is not truly reflective of the reason that at least I transitioned. It wasn't to create a positive, but to remove a negative, to alleviate that that homesickness, that pain in the pit of my stomach. And and it was and it was through that that sort of those explanations and the long conversations that my parents were able to take that journey with me. Um, my mom, she she was incredibly upset she she said she felt like her child was dying and i think that that's a really common experience for parents of lgbtq youth particularly trans youth as they sort of mourn the experiences that they had that maybe didn't mean as much to the child because they were in pain potentially and also this morning of the dreams that they maybe right. have for their child yes. and and that was the biggest thing for my parents they were scared they were scared about my future. They were scared about my ability to find a partner, to, to be fulfilled and to be happy. Um, and it was it took my brother, who's a radiation oncologist, to say, you're, you're not losing your child. They're not going anywhere. And for me, my mom would ask, you know, what are the chances my oldest brother is gay? What are the chances I have a gay son and a trans daughter? And my hope was that in time, my parents would get to a place where they would ask that question. What are the chances not out of pity, but of right. out of awe for the diversity of our family. How lucky are they? They hit the jackpot. They, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. We are a stronger and a better family. And I've seen them go on that journey. And I've seen yeah. them get to that place. And I've seen that evolution with them. And it really gives me, I think, a lot of hope that there are other people with a good heart and an open mind who can go on that journey too. Well, I'm 13 years older than you. And I will tell you that my parents have marched with me in the San Diego LGBT Pride Parade for probably 15 years. And at this point, to your point about the evolution, you know, going from folks who are a little bit trepidation about what is this and you're not going to get married and what about grandkids to they're the first to ring me up and say, when's the Pride Parade? We really want to walk. You know, well, you know, your uncle's going to be in town, so let's do this together. So it's this sort of uh, transition that they go through as well, right? To to become accepting to the point where you know I'm like, yeah, pride, it's coming up. I'll, I'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, but they're you know planning the decorations and the theme of the float and everything like that. Well, I and I imagine it just must have been so incredibly validating and comforting for them to see you walk onto the floor of the state legislature and be sworn in. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, these intersexual lives that we play or have or live. Um, you know, for them, it has less to do with my orientation and more to do with our economic class. Mm. You know, I'm the son of a maid and a gardener. And I like to think, you know, my story is one that is uniquely Californian, uniquely San Diegan. And um, they worked really hard, right? They're sacrificing absolutely everything for my brother and I to be successful, to go to college. And, you know, I, I sit on that uh, on that floor and I, I brought my mother with me when I was for my swearing in. And so she's sitting there with me and you know, it's 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 her pension plan, right? It's her retirement. Yeah. This is what they've worked for. They've sacrificed. They're not wealthy people, um, but they have the best morals and values, and that's frankly how I got here. So, um, yeah, I think uh, they uh, 
I know that they're quite proud. They tell me that often. Um, they weigh in occasionally on political issues now, which is really funny going from people who I actually personally registered to vote you know, right. 25 years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I love my parents. So I, I'm curious, you've had an experience that few of us uh, will ever, ever have, and certainly a few of our listeners will. You spoke before a national convention. Can you talk about that? What's that experience like? It was. And I asked this as a as a committed C-SPAN viewer, right? Yeah, you, as someone you were, who you were glued to the convention. There was an eight-year-old somewhere in San Diego who was watching every minute of your speech. Yeah, uh, tell us about that experience. It was truly incredible. You know, I, as as we talked about, we both were, were glued to C-SPAN growing up, and that included in two thousand and four, when I was thirteen, about to be fourteen, watching the uh, Democratic National Convention in Boston, and just being glued to every single second of it. And to then, 12 years later, to be able to stand on that stage as my authentic self uh, in a at a convention where there was a record number of openly transgender delegates was, for me, uh, an experience I'll never forget. And as you know, dark as this political moment can sometimes seem, and even though the last election didn't go the way we wanted it, um, the, the feeling that was in that arena doesn't go away. The knowledge that that alliance of supporters that we have built remains in the fights that we have right now, that doesn't go away. And I think for me, the most sort of talking about our parents, the most incredible, the most incredible part of that convention was when I was standing on stage, they light the arena so well, you can see up into the rafters, you can see every single head um, of every single attendee. And that means that the whole time I could see my parents standing mm -hmm. right under the Delaware delegation sign the whole time. And throughout my speech, all I could think about was that they were so scared when I came out. They were so worried that my life was over, that I couldn't do what I wanted to do, that I wouldn't find love, which I was able to find, that I wouldn't be able to have a career, certainly not in, in the fields that I wanted to go into, government and politics. And here they were just six years after I came out, watching an arena full of people standing up and applauding and affirming not just my dignity, but the dignity and the cause of all transgender people. And in that moment, I just, I, I hoped that they knew that at least for me, it was going to be okay. How cool. It was really cool. It was really cool. Do they have good swag bags at conventions? <laughs> they, they, actually, I don't know. Oh. I didn't get a, I didn't get a swag bag. Oh. Conventions are made up by two kinds of people, people who wear one button and people who wear all of the buttons. <laughs> so there was definitely, I think I came away with a lot of buttons. That's for sure. Buttons, I, I, you know, junkie, right? Political junkie yeah. would love buttons. Exactly. That would make me happy. It was perfect. You know, you talk about standing on that stage and making this historic speech, the first ever in history by a trans person. What does that expectation feel like? And that's not just at the convention, but in your daily life as one of the most visible transgender people in the country, if not in the world. What is that like? You know, give our listeners a sense of that 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 obligation because I know I feel it. Yeah. Um, as a as a queer man of color in a in public office, there's not a lot of us. There's even fewer of you. Can you talk about what that what that feels like? Is that is that in, in, inspiring? Is that a burden? Um, is it something in between? Well, it's a responsibility. I think more than anything else, it's a responsibility that I that I felt in that moment to make sure that I did right by my own community and that I utilized the short time that I had on that stage to educate the country a little bit more about transgender people. You know, there's there's the saying that people aren't going to remember um, what you did or, or what you said. They're going to remember how you made them feel. And Angela, so right? I wanted, yeah. And so I wanted to make sure that I used that time to underscore the simple fact 
that transgender people are people who love and laugh, hope and dream, fear and cry just like everyone else. And of course, there's a number of issues that we need to address that I that I did talk about in the speech from the need to uh, the need to pass the Equality Act, which is a nationwide comprehensive LGBTQ non-discrimination bill since LGBTQ people in a majority of states and at the national level still don't have clear protections from discrimination to combating violence against transgender women of color. But I also wanted to make sure that I told my own story and that I underscored that the humanity behind this issue. Um, and that's really been the cornerstone of, of my advocacy is trying to blend the personal with the political. Because at the end of the day, for all of us, particularly those of us who, who come from marginalized communities or live at the intersection of multiple marginalized identities, the political is personal. Yes. And people have to understand that, that this isn't an abstract issue. This is about people's lives. And we, you know, we have to move past this, this outdated notion that separates our politics into social issues and economic issues because we cannot have, for instance, an economy that works for everyone if any single person is kept out of a job simply because of prejudice or discrimination. And, and people need to understand the human stakes of this issue. And that's the responsibility I felt. And that's, that was my goal in, in those few minutes. I so agree about the personal being political. And, you know, if you um, ever hear me give a speech or if you look at my social media accounts, you will see that I always proudly state I am the son of a maiden gardener, the legislature's first Native American, Filipino, Puerto Rican, Dutch gay legislator. Um, and it's a mouthful, but it's it's intended to do two things. One, put people at ease. You know, being multiracial, sometimes people don't know quite who and what they're talking to. And I find that it puts them a little at ease. But it's also to kind of explain the complexities of our lives, right? And your life is maybe somewhat complex. Mine is as well. But I think really everyone's is. And it's intended to, you know, again, sort of point how personal these experiences are and how that informs how I try and represent my constituents, who you speak on behalf of. Um, and maybe that's the, the transition to, you know, you mentioned that there's more work that must be done. Lord knows that that's true now more than ever. Um, from your national platform, can you talk about how is California perceived in the LGBTQ movement uh, nationally, internationally? What do you see as you go around the country, as you look west to California? You know, what do you see us doing here for, for civil rights and for equality? Well, I think California has always been at the forefront of the movement for LGBTQ equality. Uh, and now more than ever, California has a role and a responsibility to be at the forefront of this movement. We have seen over the last particularly two years uh, unprecedented attacks on the LGBTQ community at the federal level. This past year, we saw 130 anti-LGBTQ bills introduced in 30 states. And California, as a state that has Democratic majorities in both chambers and a Democratic governor, has a responsibility to show this country what it looks like to em embrace and affirm all of its residents. It has a responsibility to expand our understanding of we the people to include people who have too long been forgotten or unseen. And I think in many ways that's what you all are doing here in the legislature. You are giving this country a model of equality and opportunity. And whether it's the, the legacy of this state and making sure that transgender students are protected throughout school, whether it's the legacy of this state in passing non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people throughout daily life, whether it's the ongoing efforts to expand healthcare access to transgender people or the ongoing efforts to protect LGBTQ Californians from the fraudulent practice of conversion therapy, there's more that can be done and that California can demonstrate to other states 
even if you pass non-discrimination protections, even with marriage equality, there is there is still more that needs to be done to ensure that LGBTQ people are safe from violence, are given the same opportunities as everyone else, and that they are granted health care just like everyone else. And and I think that's what that's what this legislature has been doing. And the rest of the country is looking west. They're looking at California for that model. And I think you have been providing that and you will continue to provide that. And in doing so, you're going to save lives and you're going to demonstrate what this country will hopefully look like in 10 or 15 years. I love that answer. I couldn't have said it any better myself. It's, I, I, um, you know, it is a responsibility, right? It, these are some difficult times for the for our community, um, but it's not enough to just oppose and to say what we disagree with at the federal level. We really want to lead here uh, in the Capitol. And you've mentioned a number of bills uh, that have been introduced in this session. You know, sometimes my constituents and friends are like, what else do we need to do in California? Don't we have it all? And the answer is no. And in fact, what we're doing is pioneering, hopefully for the rest of the country. And while it feels like the country may be on a bit of a pause for hopefully no more than four years, um, you know, that when, when things maybe come back to normal, uh, maybe we'll have bu- built a blueprint here that the rest of the country can look to and perhaps replicate uh, in their states and in their communities. Well, and I think that that's the most incredible thing about this moment. And it's the most incredible thing about being in places like California, which is that we all know that generations from now, a young LGBTQ student will grow up and learn about this moment in their history books, in their textbooks. And they'll never have to know what this progress felt like to all of us who are LGBTQ because they will never know anything different. And that will be because of advocates and activists who spoke up. It'll be because of LGBTQ people who marched and fought. And it'll be because of California helping to bend the arc of the moral universe just a little bit more towards justice. That's right. So the nerdy kid in San Diego or the nerdy kid in uh, Delaware watching C-SPAN will know that there's hope, right? Exactly. That they can make a contribution too. Uh, what what would you like uh, our listeners to know before before we sign off? Well, I think what what every person needs to know is that we are at a moment of choosing in the state and in this country, and we must decide whether we will be a nation that says there's only one way to love, only one way to look, and only one way to live, or whether we will be a nation where everyone has the freedom to live openly and equally. And while every chapter in the history books may be influenced by politicians and presidents. In the end, they are written by all of us, by the decisions we make every single day to either be silent in the face of prejudice or persecution or to speak out and to fight back. And I think if there's one thing we've seen over the last two years, it's that no election and no presidency will silence our voices. So we need people to continue to fight back. We need people to speak out. We need people to call their legislators, their members of Congress to support pro-equality legislation and oppose oppose anti-equality bills. We need all of us to show up for one another because the only way that we can beat back the politics of hate is if we recognize that all of these fights are inextricably linked. And we need to recognize that, as Audre Lorde said, there's no such thing as a single-issue cause because no one lives single-issue lives. So we need to stand up for one another. We need to show up for one another. We need to vote. We need to register. We need to make sure that we're volunteering. We need to do all we can to reclaim the soul and story of this country from those who wish to roll back the clock on our progress. And there is no more important place to be doing that than here in California. 
give me chills, goosebumps. Uh, I'm so glad you do what you do. Uh, I don't know that there could be a better, more eloquent voice for us, particularly at this time. The feeling is mutual. Thank you. <laughs> um, Sarah, thank you so much. And thank you to all of our listeners for being a part of the Look West uh, podcast. Um, of course, again, a special thanks to our LGBT award recipient. How did it feel? Did you enjoy it? Going oh on the God, I just called my parents and told them all about it. It was amazing. Did you like the place? Oh, it's we beautiful. We cleaned up special for you. Oh, well, you did a good job. <laughs> I was saying it's nicer than the U.S. Capitol. <laughs> For many reasons. For many reasons. <laughs> uh, so I've been talking with Sarah McBride, our LGBT Award recipient, and we want to thank you and congratulate you and all of our uh, 2018 Pride uh, awardees today. I mean, sharing our stories means so much to our listeners, and it takes a lot of courage to be able to open up about who you are, uh, our struggles, and our victories, and how everyone in the LGBT community plays an important part in our world uh, as we were saying, the personal is political, and it's okay to share personal stories. It's often how we change hearts and minds and make the progress that we're here to do. Uh, thanks again for listening. I'm Assemblymember Todd Gloria, and when it comes to what's going on in the California State Capitol, don't forget to look west. Hi, I'm Cindy Baker, producer of the Look West podcast. You know, we talk about a lot of issues here on the show, from healthcare to the legacy of Chicano art to the Me Too movement and so much more. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Rate us on iTunes, and we want to hear from you. Look West is available on a variety of social platforms, and our team is happy to continue to create a place where you can really get to know the people that you've chosen to represent your community. Thanks again for listening, and when it comes to what's going on in the state capitol, be sure to look west.